we're live. Godfrey, thanks for coming on. I'm looking forward to this. Pleasure. Um, so I think uh, I, I know you've done uh, some some podcasts in the Bitcoin space already, but for uh, those people that may not have listened to those podcasts or are very familiar with you, how about we get the uh, the brief rundown of your storied life up till now? Uh, right. Uh, well, I'm a city. I was a city fund manager for over thirty years managing fixed interest, which is terribly unfashionable and boring. It certainly was in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and uh, although I was reasonably good at it um, and won a few prizes for it, as I say, it wasn't frightfully fashionable. And, and uh, there we are. So my history, as it were, is in been in fund management. I'm an Austrian school economist. I was in politics for a little while, and I did sit on the Monetary and Economic Affairs Committee in the European Parliament. Uh, so, if if you will, I've seen I've seen this uh, situation from both sides. You know, I've been on the regulatory side, uh, as it were, and I've also been on the investment side. So, I have experience of both. Uh, and of course, I'm a very well known uh, and published gold bug, Austrian school gold bug, um, and I am still a gold bug. Uh, but uh, and I've been following Bitcoin, Bitcoin and watching Bitcoin uh, for some time because I'm a big believer in cryptocurrency and I'm that can't be faked by central banks. So I'm a big supporter of Bitcoin. I'm an investor now in Bitcoin uh, because I felt I had to. There's only so much gold that you have to diversify. I couldn't have just galvanized buckets of uh, gold sovereigns all over the place. What I had to do was diversify. And if, as I don't believe in fiat currency, paper currency and central banks, Bitcoin was the next obvious port of call. And I, it's been very enjoyable. And I'm still adding to my Bitcoin portfolio. Um, and so it, it, it's, been, it's been rather fun. Uh, but, and, and, but just finishing off on that, I do not see some Bitcoiners see Bitcoin and gold somehow in some form of competition. And I don't see that. Uh, I just see it's a way of getting out of the clutches of central banks and diversifying your portfolio. Uh, it isn't one thing or the other. It's both. They can run in tandem. They have very similar uh, uh, attributes, very similar attributes. And some of the drawbacks uh, 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 that we see on both sides, So, which I don't think my experience so far haven't been fully debated. There's an evangelism in Bitcoin, which tends to cut people's thinking off from what might be coming further down the road. Oh, I've bought Bitcoin. I'm safe as houses. I can't go wrong. And I don't think it's quite as simple as that. And I'm speaking to you under house arrest in England. And my family can't visit me here because the police will stop them. And I think we need to just contemplate the situation at the moment, the world we are now living in. All right. And that's what I don't think a lot of people are doing. Yes. And I think, you know, that's a that's a big topic. And I do want to break into that uh, because it's, it's perhaps one of the most important uh, questions to answer. But just before we do, you mentioned you're under house arrest. Most people in the world have experienced some variation thereof over the past 12 months. You you know, you had a career in politics, you worked in the city of London in, in finance. What do you make of what led us to where we are right now and why we are here? Why, how have you come to be locked down in your house? What's gone wrong? Well, it's an interesting question because uh, I did actually finish my career as the chief executive of a life insurance company in London. 
So I'm very familiar with mortality statistics uh, and actuarial practices when it comes to uh, uh, you know, life assurance, the implications of health. Uh, so I'm not a layman in these terms. Now, uh, what do we know? Let's line up what we know. We know that the, 19, the, the epidemic, the virus epidemic in the United Kingdom in 1957, 1958, 1968 were all worse than this. We also know that the mortality statistics are around about the same as they were in 2010. We also know that over the last 20 years, the death variations over the last 20 years, 2020, is only 5% up on the average. So what do we know? What do we draw from that? We know, don't we, that this is not about health. This is not about a public health issue. This is, if you will, uh, the coronavirus thing. This is about a platform for build back better, reset the new normal, call it what you will. And it's my hypothesis that the complete collapse of the central banking and fiat currency system is going to be on us sooner rather than later. It is my also belief that they know that. Uh, not all politicians know that because as you know, most politicians are incredibly stupid. But I would argue that the power, whoever is pulling the strings, and none of us really quite know that, the people pulling the, the strings know that is happening. And so they want the levers of power. They want the levers of power. And they know now uh, that in certainly in the United Kingdom, they know that we will comply with whatever they say. People are walking around with muzzles on their faces when every single health professional uh, will tell you, if only privately, that they're futile against a virus. But it is a mark of subservience to the state. And we're seeing that and we're being closed down. Uh, the country's being closed, but it isn't for public health reasons. Uh, it's for something else. And I suspect, I suspect it's because of the coming collapse of currencies. Yeah, that's that's actually one of the specific things I wanted to ask you about. And, and I think I speak for a lot of people in the Bitcoin space when I say what's been one of the more terrifying aspects of the past year. And look, we were under no assumptions, or I'll speak for myself, I was under no assumptions about how uh, complacent and how uninformed and how uh, easy to manipulate, you know, the broader population of the world has been for a long time. It's just broken, it's entered into new territory over the past 12 months. And what I find uh, extremely concerning, as you said, if you look at the data around this virus, around mortality, around you know the actual data around what this really is, the response that it's elicited is completely irrational. But the problem is, is that nobody sees fit to do that research for themselves. And speaking in, in terms of you know regular citizens, they just, acquiesce to anything that comes out of that, you know, electronic box in their living room or the mouths of, of the people that uh, presumably govern them. And the reason why that's so concerning is because if we're not basing our decisions on rational, logical assessment of the best available data, then what we're operating, what we're basing our behavior and decisions on is pure emotion. And in this case, it might be fear, you know, especially on, on, on the hand of the population. So, but what, when I, confront these situations uh, typically, you know, you can either say this is due to malice or this is due to incompetence. And when I was younger, I, you know, everything was a conspiracy, right? And so I, you know, saw conspiracy everywhere. 
as I grew up, as I learned more, I, as I became more acquainted with the incompetence of, of, you know, the, a lot of people, I thought, you know what, I see the reactions. I see how easy it is for people to acquiesce. And so I can see how that feeds into incompetence and how incompetence feeds in on itself. And so what I might have thought could only be explained by malevolence, because, you know, how else could it be the case that rational human beings would act this way? I think a lot of times now I'm more convinced that it's actually incompetence is the root of this. But you make an interesting point, and this is not something that's, quote unquote, allowed to be discussed in polite company. But as you and I both know, the financial system, global currency markets, the way in which the global financial system is structured has been fracturing for quite a long time. And in the fall of last year, in, in, in uh, September, October, you know, you could look at the repo market and say there's a lot of really strange things going on here that seem to indicate that, you know, the, the, the topsy-turvy nature of the financial system is starting to really become unwound. And then lo and behold, a few months later, we have this virus. Um, the reason why I say it's not able to be discussed is because you can't, you know, you can't uh, make the, you can't even postulate or, or have a discussion about is, could this thing have emerged for malevolent reasons, you know? So was it a matter of this being leveraged, as you say, this crisis being leveraged so that the people in, in power could exact more control over people? Or is it, a, you know, is it possible that it was even, you know, it, it, it was developed for that reason? And I, I'm not saying that that's my, my opinion, but if we can't have a discussion about all the potential possibilities, then surely we're not going to come to any approximation of the truth. What do you think, you know, first of all, what is, what was your, what is your take on where we are in the degradation of the existing financial system? And what is your take on how this crisis has been leveraged potentially to cover up um, and, and institute a new solution with a, with a scapegoat that is not the people truly responsible for the degradation of this financial system? What, what's your take on that sort of theory? <clears throat> well, as soon as, uh, as soon as you came off, uh, or the world, or the, 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 the leaders of the world, the leading economists of the world came off asset-backed currency, uh, it was going to lead to its degradation because there was no other way it could go. Uh, basically, what governments have since the introduction of central banks, and in America, of course, that was 1913, that was quite a long time ago. If, if you have a machine that will print money, you will print money. It doesn't matter whether you're a politician or a banker or, or an individual, it, you, you will print it because that, that, that is what the temptation to do that, especially in a democracy with politicians who want to get the next election won in four or five years time. So it's the old Roman thing of bread and circuses, you print money. And now if they really believed in this new monetary theory, modern monetary theory, which they talk about, improvements of this world, so on and so forth, uh, they're talking about, modern, which of course isn't modern at all, it's Keynesianism. We've seen all this before, printing money, um, but his idea was you, you, you just printed money when you needed to print money, really, really, really needed to print money, not all the time. Now it's all the time. Uh, and so we know that that's degraded uh, uh, the currency. We know that the 1971 uh, dollar, when Nixon took uh, closed the gold window, we know that now that dollar is now worth only eight cents. Uh, and all other currencies have gone the same way. We know in this century alone uh, that against gold, uh, we've seen uh, fiat currencies degrade by 80%. And that's just in this century alone, that's only 20 years. 
So we know this to be the case because you need to print money for two things, basically, politicians. They need to print money for warfare or for welfare. Now, in America, it tends to be warfare. They have a trillion dollar budget, wars all over the place, they're permanent state of war. That's the Pentagon, that's the CIA, that's Washington DC, that's the neocons who've run the ship for years and years and decades and decades, since Eisenhower, who wasn't a great one for overseas wars because he was a real soldier. Eisenhower's a real soldier, he'd seen warfare firsthand. Uh, the guys now that send people to war haven't. They're scarlet majors at the base, speeding glum heroes up the line to death. These are very nasty people. They don't have to go to war. They send young men. That needs to be paid for. Now, in the United Kingdom, we have a welfare state, which is a crazy, crazy system where you choose whether you want to work or not. You're probably just as well off if you've got a few children staying at home and not working. Uh, we have a national health system, which is a complete and total laugh, laugh and disgrace. It's hopeless. We pump £120 billion pounds it to, in, uh, every year, and it's still not fit for purpose. So you have to keep turning this money machine all the time uh, to cover it all up. Um, now, the problem that we have is that what's, was, is it cock up or conspiracy? As, as you say, we don't know. When you were young, you thought it was conspiracy. Then you came away. Well, you know, I've been agonizing over this. I'm 71 and I've been agonizing over this for, for decades and decades. And when I went into politics for the first time, I came late because it was Brexit. I, I was a Brexiteer. I wanted to get self-government back to the United Kingdom. So it wasn't politics with a big P. I was a Brexiteer, sat as an independent uh, and got elected on several occasions. So that, that, that was okay. But I have actually worked with politicians, very closely with politicians, uh, and the thing that struck me more than anything else is their unbelievable stupidity. They are the most stupid group of people that I've ever met. And when they're in committee, they become even more stupid and the decisions that committees make become doubly stupid. So they're incredibly stupid people. But we have to remember that they're the guys we see on TV. They're the guys that we actually think are running the country, the guys that we voted for, but we know they're not. We know they're not. These people don't. So who's running the system in the United Kingdom at the moment when it comes to this coronavirus business? It's people like Neil Ferguson, at the, uh, Professor Ferguson at the Imperial uh, College, uh, London University. He's a Marxist. <clears throat> we have people on the science committees who are self-confessed communists. So we know that Boris Johnson's a buffoon. We know that all the people around him are idiots, but they're not actually running anything at the moment. Uh, the people who are running it are people who have a political agenda. And it doesn't matter whether you're a fascist or a communist or whatever you are, you must break the system if you want to rebuild. And they're not even hiding that. They're talking about reset, the new normal, build back better. This is all about a form of communism, fascism, statism. Uh, that's what they're really, that's what it's really all about. And that's what's driving it forward. Not politicians themselves. And it was the same at the European Union. The parliament was an amending chamber. The parliament was an amending chamber. We didn't make any law. It was the people behind closed doors on the commission that made the law. All we did was ratify it or not. And usually we ratified it. We ratified 95% of it, then we tweaked it a little bit here and there. But no political uh, democratic dynamic in the European Union. It's run by civil servants and bureaucrats. Uh, and now they're not stupid. They're not stupid. They're extremely clever and they have a goal and they have a mission. And that is not what people want. It's not democracy. It isn't representative democracy. It's not kind of any kind of democracy. It's being told what to do. Uh, and that is the problem. That's where it's 
part cock up and part conspiracy. And why do you think these people, you know, the the smart ones that have a, a large hand to play in, in how all of this unfolds, why do you think they are at cross purpose with, let, with, let's say, everyone else, you know, the common man and woman on the street? What is it, you know, because to my mind, and I think most people that are free market capitalist types, they think, well, a rising tide lifts all boats. Let's all just get on with the business of trying to live the best life we can in the freest form we can. And that, you know, that allows for prosperity and that allows for everyone to be, you know, lifted out of poverty and all sorts of dynamism in an economy, et cetera. If you squash people's, if, if you alter the incentive structure of society, and of course, having a large centralized, centrally planned economy of the nature that most governments operate today certainly has a, a large effect on people's incentives. But if you screw with the money, if you screw with the government, if you screw with people's incentives, if you place restrictions on them, if you basically try to turn them into, you know, slaves, sheep, whatever you want to, however you want to characterize them, what ultimately is the benefit to anyone who would want to do that? Because, you know, if, if, if they do that, then let, their world becomes less dynamic as well because you know who what's the purpose of living amongst a group of people that are increasingly powerless it's a very good question it's a very difficult question but i think it's something to do with the educational system we've had since the war people aren't trained in critical thinking we have more people at university in the united kingdom than ever before but they're not trained in critical thinking they're trained in educational box ticking so when I lecture at universities, which I used to do quite a lot of, whether it's Cambridge, Durham, Oxford, you know, the top universities in the United Kingdom and, 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 and so on and so forth, um, they, the people that I speak to, the undergraduates that I speak to, feel that, have been brought up to believe that capitalism is a bad thing. Worse, worse, they believe what we have in the United Kingdom is capitalism. Right. Because nobody's actually explained mercantilism to them. We don't have capitalism. There's only one true capitalist society since the war, and that was Hong Kong. Uh, and Hong Kong said, we'll make sure the drains work and the, uh, we'll look after any crime problems. Uh, but the rest of it, you get on with it. And you could go back in this country, uh, for example, uh, if you go back to the administration of Lord Salisbury in the 1880s and 1890s, a conservative prime minister, Conservative Prime Minister, probably the best Prime Minister, peacetime Prime Minister we've ever had. And he described the role of government. Uh, and you can find it in the Oxford Book of Quotations, and I love it. He says that the job of Parliament is to facilitate the entrepreneurial spirit of the citizen. That, that, but that we don't do that now. What we do is what the government says is we will look after your education, your social security, your pensions, your health. We will do everything for you. And that's a warm and comfortable thing. And that happened in 1945 with the Kharkiv election. We'll keep you nice and warm and cuddly. But in exchange for that, you mustn't do any thinking for yourself. You mustn't expect to keep your own money. Uh, we now have the highest tax take in the United Kingdom for 50 years. And if you add all the, all the taxes together, income tax, national insurance tax, uh, duty, petrol duty, booze duty, and all that, if you add all that together, an ordinary guy, uh, a middle income, middle class guy is losing 50% of his income every year. It's a huge figure. Some of people sort of just think, but you see, the thing is that people in this country now don't associate the tax they pay with, they think the government has money. 
magic money of their own. And so they want the furlough payments, they want the grants, they want the tax free, they want the welfare, because they are under the impression, and the educational system has done this, that somehow there's free money. And the people who actually run the system, the bureaucrats, believe that to be the case. So when you say, why do they think that? The point is because they are not critical thinkers. They don't think about where their salary comes from, their indexing pensions, their wonderful, warm, comfortable life that they leave unsackable in the public sector. You don't get sacked from the civil service in the United Kingdom. And I think your analogy, or if I may use an analogy here, and that is your 18th century, early 19th century doctor who would put leeches on anemic pregnant women. And when they died, because they were anemic and they lost even more blood that they didn't have to spare to the leeches, the doctor would chastise himself for not putting enough leeches on the, pavement, on the, on the patient. So when all this breaks down, when this all breaks down, the currency and the central banks, the problem will be they will all immediately think the political class that they didn't, there wasn't enough state control. Not that there was too much state control, but there was uh, there was not enough of it. And your man in the street will will cry for more government action. You know, the banks have gone bankrupt. The more government action. They will not for one minute think that this, the real situation is that there has been too much government, too much state control, and that's what caused it. Now, the people watching uh, your uh, show here, Bitcoiners. And gold bugs, and um, we're cousins under the skin, whether Bitcoiners like it or not. Uh, we're cousins under the skin. Bitcoiners know this, which is why they're Bitcoiners. They've opted out of the system. They've taken their money out of the central banking system of Bitcoin and put it into Bitcoin. And gold bugs have taken it out and put it into gold. So we all know that that's the right thing to do. But we are too few. I mean, the actual exposure to gold, gold, for example, in the average portfolio. Uh, investment portfolio is probably no more than 1% at best. Uh, so uh, when the country does wake up to this, it, it will be far too late. And all we will have is more state control, far more state control. I mean, if, if, if that's possible for the whole country in England at the moment under house arrest, it's even if that is possible to have even more, we'll have even more. And the difference is they will come. They've already said they're coming for us. They're coming for whatever money is left. They're broke, everybody's broke, the banks are broke. The only people who've got any little bit of money left are the English middle classes, and they will come for us. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> I, I totally agree with that characterization. And I've heard people say before, and I, I think I've probably said it, that I'm astounded at how little regard, respect, desire for, uh, ambition for uh, freedom that you know people in the world today have. Uh, what be, and and you know my reasoning for that is seeing how egregiously their their freedoms are being infringed upon in 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 the, in the past year. But then I came to realize that you know if you have discussions with people and such, they you know nobody's going to admit that they don't value freedom. The thing is, is and I think as you said, it you know has largely to do with the educational system and, and the broader uh, the structural system uh, that's predicated upon the money that the world has used for the last hundred years um, is that people believe this is freedom, right? They believe that the government taking care of X, Y, Z for them, telling them what they should do for their health, telling them, you know, investing in this and that, providing these, these services 
basically their default assumption is that I live in a free democracy, therefore I am free, therefore anything that happens in that free democracy is freedom, versus having an absolute understanding of what that, that might be, regardless of the, the, the movements or machinations of the state. You know, I, I throughout this, uh, you know, trying to find a ray of light in this uh, crisis, uh, there's been a lot of good memes on the internet. I'm sure you've come across them, but one that I, I found striking was it was, uh, you know, the founding fathers or, or, you know, the writers of the constitution in the United States, right? And it's this big, you know, uh, celebratory moment where they're like, you know, kind of standing. It's, it's, it's a formal painting. I don't know who did the painting, but they're basically saying, you know, look at this amazing constitution. You know, this will be the bedrock of the free and open prosperous society that we will build, you know, on this land sort of thing. Um, and then at the bottom, the kind of the fine print was, uh, just so we're clear, none of this matters if there's a virus that kills 0.1% of people. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and that kind of illustrates the absurdity of this. And I think it also illustrates that people have become so complacent that I think they've, they're unaware of if they if they ever were aware but i think they're unaware of the necessity for absolutes in terms of structuring how we get on with each other as human beings there there, there, there needn't always be government you know i think that will morph and change over time but there will always be some form of governance because that's how we that's how we determine the nature of our behavior with one another and you know, I think the Constitution in the United States was a, a great example of some really well thought out absolutes on which to structure a society, but almost, you know, being um, a victim of its own success, uh, you know, and you could you could extend that all over the world, of course, um, a certain amount of complacency has descended upon people where I think a lot of people wake up and they look out on the world and they say, you know, and they go to the grocery store and they watch their movie and they turn on their Netflix and they check their iPhone and check Instagram. And they just think this is reality. This is how reality is. And, you know, why would it ever be anything different? And I don't think they give enough credit to one, the process that it took to get, you know, throughout the course of human history to get to where they are and the advantages and the, the things that they're able to avail of, but also what's necessary to keep that reality in its place and to keep pushing it forward. And, you know, and we live in an environment right now where not, it seems like that's being attacked from all angles. So as you said, you know, of course the government, any, anytime anyone has a money printer in the basement, they're always gonna find reasons to use it. And if one group of people has a money printer and another group of people has to sell their time for money, the inevitable outcome is a relationship of slavery, of course. Right. The government, if, if one group of people doesn't have to work for the money, the other do it, it, a, a relationship with slavery develop, develops. But in the education system and, and, and broader social context right now, there seems to be a drive toward undoing the absolutes of the past and disregarding the very things that allowed for, you know, the prosperity and the freedoms that, you know, over the last few hundred years have been established. And, you know, I know this is a difficult question, but why do you, is this just a cycle of kind of time, you know, where good times create weak men and weak men create bad times and bad times, strong men, strong men, good times. Is this an inevitable cycle of human history? Or do you think there's something else at play in your mind that's facilitating this complacency and unwinding things that have been established in the past? I think probably it's cyclical. 
Uh, and if you look at history, and I'm a published historian as well, if you look at the, uh, the cycles, I think it is a cyclical situation. <clears throat> and if you go back to the Enlightenment of the late 18th century and the early 19th century, <clears throat> but of course these people aren't being taught seriously anymore at the universities. And of course the academics have taken over uh, the universities and they are uh, talking about, you know, they are deciding the curriculum. So one under, undergraduate should be studying uh, John Locke. Uh, uh, they should be studying uh, Herbert Spencer. They should be studying um, Jane, John Stuart Mill, uh, Frederick Bastiat. Uh, and these are the people that they should be looking at. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, and these people's ideas and attitudes, of course, stand the test of time uh, and if they but they're not reading that they're not reading that in philosophy they're reading people like Jean-Paul Sartre who's a pygmy in compared with these people I've just mentioned he's a pygmy <laughs> in, in comparison with these people and they're not getting that and of course because they don't have critical thinking uh, or they're not trained in critical thought they're not digging it out for themselves and if you were to advocate uh, these people you could guarantee uh, that instead of every student, every undergraduate wants a 2-1, a, a, a first or a 2-1, uh, to get them on the rat race to get interviewed by the, you know, the, the big business, if they want to go into big business, you need a first or a 2-1. If you were advocating Austrian school economics, reading economics at Durham University, you'd be lucky to get a 2-2. They would mark you down. Uh, in the same way at science, uh, I had a word with... Um, the, at, a, at a public school uh, uh, just uh, up the road where my family went to, or some of my family went to, uh, I spoke to the, the science master, the head of science master, and I said, why are you perpetuating this nonsense that man-made carbon dioxide is somehow going to boil the planet, uh, which is so absurd, it's laughable, and you're a scientist. He said, I have to do this because I'm paid for them to get their A-levels to get into university. I have to teach fake science Otherwise, they won't get an A plus and they won't get into university. And that's what the parents pay me, pay me for. And I thought, this is really straight out of 1930s Germany. It's straight out of the Soviet Union. And we've had that. But we've had generations of that. So young people today, <clears throat> they don't even think on the right lines. They're not even thinking on the right lines. Um, but that will change. Uh, I think the cycle will change. When we have massive, nobody goes to the barricades with a full tummy, but when we have mass unemployment, and that's coming down the road when we have the, the, the collapse of the banking system, when this happens, people will start saying, how did we get here? Why wasn't I taught this at university? Why was I told only Keynesian economics? Why wasn't I taught Austrian school economics? Why did we get here? How did we get here? And that will have a whole shift back again. Um, and I think there will be a new enlightenment but what we've got to do, we've got to get rid of we, some of the steps. BBC, we have to get rid of the BBC. If you don't, if you don't pay the BBC 150 pounds a year, you could go to prison in the United Kingdom. There are hundreds of channels to watch, subscription, advertising, there's hundreds to choose from. But you go to prison if you don't pay the BBC. We're not just talking about philosophy here, we're talking about morality. That's immoral by anybody's standards. But if you ask the average Joe, they don't like writing a check for 150 quid, but they go on doing it. They go on doing it because the United Kingdom now is a nation of sheep. 
they, I don't know how they got here. I don't know how they managed to get themselves into this spiral of, of, of apathy and despair, which is where most people are at the moment. And if you talk about, uh, you talk about liberty, liberty, freedom of thought, so on and so forth, um, which of course started, uh, you don't have to go that far back really historically. Let's go back to the 1688-1689 Bill of Rights, the Toleration Acts, which of course is what the American constitution was built on. Uh, the reason that the, the Americans uh, uh, revolted against the British Empire, because they weren't getting the benefits that were happening back in the United Kingdom um, uh, of, of the benefits of the Bill of Rights. Uh, then of course we have things like writs of habeas corpus, uh, the, 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 these the, these things, these freedoms which have evolved over a period of time. Uh, all now throw to the wind, the Julian Assange case, for example, he's been held without writ of habeas corpus now for years. He's just been, you know, there is no real reason to hold him any longer. There's, there's no reason. But it's a deal with the Americans. It's a deal basically between the CIA, which is possibly one of the most evil organizations in the history of the world, the CIA, uh, an MI5. They're getting together because he blew the whistle. He, you know, whistleblower, don't be a whistleblower. You lose your job straight away. That's if you don't get locked up. There are lots of national health doctors and nurses who are saying, this is crazy. This is nonsense. What we're doing is nonsense. But they don't, even in this country, are not allowed to give their name because they will be on disciplinary procedure. So we now have somehow morphed and COVID, or call it coronavirus, whatever you want to call it, has, has done this. It's and, and every time the state get an opportunity to, to crush people, they do. The war against terrorism, for example, what a gift that was uh, in order to take away people's uh, freedom. The home security people, and it's all for... And as I've said this many times before, your medieval king would take your money and take your land and take your cattle for his own personal benefit. He was a thief. He was a thief, but he was an honest thief. He didn't pretend it was for your own benefit. The state today takes away virtually everything you have. They mug you, they bash you over the head, they take your money, but before they go away, they whisper in your, it's in a good cause. It's in a good cause. This is for your benefit and your family's benefit. As you lie bleeding in the gutter, having had all your money taken off you, it's for your own good. And the funny thing is, the majority of people in the United Kingdom actually believe it is for their own good. What can you do? <laughs> Yeah, it, it's such a peculiar circumstance we find ourselves in. And, and you know, I've been saying a lot lately, just because I, I, I believe it to be so true that, you know, you mentioned the medieval era. When we study the medieval era and we see the pictures and the paintings and the representations of that period, it's always, you know, the king in his castle with the crown and, you know, abundance and everything. And the people outside the castle walls despondent and you know melancholy and no smiling and dirty and you know that's our conception of that era now what it was really like who knows certainly the people at the time probably didn't think it was as bad as we now see it and that is precisely the scenario that i think history will look back on this period i mean we look around the world today and we just we see how despondent and how many mental health issues there are and how much you know uh you know just general uh, unhappiness and oppression that there is. And somehow that's not motivating enough for us to think, why is it this way? And what might we do to make it different? You know, and, and instead people just accept it. And I think that's why at this period now, 200 years from now, or less or more or whatever, we'll look back on 
and it will become so obvious the the oppression and the effects of that oppression that had on individuals' lives and their you know state of happiness and their mental health, et cetera. Um, but it'll only only be told in hindsight. And you know, I, I find it so interesting these days. Like I can and I often do sit in front of my peers and I try not, you know, you know, you're talking about um, you can you can get fired, you can get uh, put in jail, whatever, for just articulating some point of disagreement with fill in the blank policy of the state. But in let's say in the last 12 months with the, the handling of the quote unquote pandemic, um, you know, even in this country, in Canada, you know, a, a provincial premier, which is, you know, a, a high position uh, and, you know, cabinet members and other, you know, duly elected politicians, um, some of them have spoken up, particularly in the more conservative uh, provinces in this country, and, and said, you know, guys, look, okay, you know, this, this, this virus is something that maybe is deserving of a state response, but we can't do so exclusively or without consideration for all the downstream effects of what that response might, might impact, what the, what the impact of that response might be. And they've been eviscerated in the media, by their political opponents, and, and by the common man or woman on the street, which is, you know, is crazy to me. All, all they're saying is, hey, are there things that we're not considering here? Let's look at the other damaging effects that this centralized imposition of, of quote unquote solutions is having. Let's look at that because it's real, you know, suicides and, and not getting your diagnoses from, you know, the hospital because you're put on a longer wait list and all this kind of stuff. It's real. And then, you know, the point I was going to make about what I talked to my peers about is I, 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 I tell them truthfully and, and calmly and without that much enthusiasm, how the paper money, the fiat money system works around the globe today. And that when the government says they're going to do a $2 trillion stimulus package or a $500 billion, whatever, all that means is that they're pressing a button and stealing from you. That's all it means. There's no, there's no other way around that. And not, on, you know, not only are they stealing from, it, from you, but they're going to ask for it back more in taxes in the future. And I can, you know, I can look at people in the face and directly say this, and it elicits no, no response. It elicits a shoulder shrug and like, oh, well, what are you going to do? And that characterizes the general malaise, I think, that most people uh, feel today, is that I think the nature of this money system that we have, the way in which it unavoidably centralizes power, has bred a society of people that even if they don't tacitly or, or, or you know, clearly understand that relationship, obviously it's, it's had tremendous effects on them, right? Let's say subconscious effects on them to the point that I think that when they're confronted with some of the truths, some of the, 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 the reality of how this system operates and the impacts that it, that it may have on them, they can't muster much of a response beyond uh, apathy. And, you know, that is, that is the big challenge here. Now, as you rightly said, Bitcoiners, gold bugs, and maybe some other class of people, these are the people that I think are recognizing the problems and saying, fuck that, you know, like, that's not what I'm, that's not the life that I want. That's not the life that I want for my family. So I'm going to try to find a way to mitigate the, the negative effects that that crazy system has on me and work with my peers to build something better, to build maybe a parallel economy. But you know, to the, to my earlier question is 
does this existing system need to completely fail for that apathy to be shaken out of people and, and for them to be, to see, you know, the, the errors and the egregious infringements that it's, uh, you know, that have been conducted under the guise of the system before they are motivated to change, in your opinion, you know, does it all have to kind of come crashing down before that apathy is dissolved? I, I'm sad to say, I think it does. <clears throat> because uh, I think people are going to have to start suffering. As I say, nobody goes to the barricades with a full tummy. Yeah. Uh, and I think there'll be lots of things that history, how will history judge a lot of this? Well, certainly when it comes to the net zero, the climate change, the carbon dioxide thing, uh, history will look back in much the same way today. We look back on the Catholic Church and the Renaissance and their treatment of Galileo and Nicholas Copernicus. We, we look back at that and we go, oh, God, you couldn't say, uh, you know, you had the, the sun went round the earth and the, <laughs> there was no way you if you didn't agree with that, that the received wisdom, uh, you'd, you know, you'd be put on the rack <clears throat> or beheaded or something. And we know that to be the case. And of course, round about that uh, era, of course, in, 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 we were still burning witches. And what we have now is the equivalent of, uh, if you speak out against the system, you speak out against uh, the, the, the fake science, which is what we're dealing with most of the time. And it gets very fake science is very easy if you have an uneducated population. We have a population which hasn't had the benefit of a, tra uh, a traditional education. They've got a certificate on the wall. They've got a certificate on the wall that shows that they attended some school or university, but they're not educating people. They wouldn't last two seconds in, a, in an interview with you like this. They just wouldn't last two seconds without showing themselves to be men, uh, probably nice men and women, but of no serious education, how I would judge it as a man of my age. So this is one of the problems that we have. Uh, how will be seen sickly historically? And if you look at the medieval, the late medieval system, which we were talking about, you know, the, the king in his castle, the poor man at his gate. When we look at that, uh, yes, okay, that's the late Middle Ages. But what people tend to overlook a little bit is the early Middle Ages uh, of the Anglo-Saxon era. Now, a lot of our laws actually came, Magna Carta, for example, didn't come from the Normans, the Plantagenets. It came from the Anglo-Saxon era and the concept of natural justice, which came with the Anglo-Saxons. And the idea of common law goes back then. People think that it goes back to the Magna Carta. It goes back hundreds of years before that. And the whole concept of natural law was that your um, your thirdings or whatever you want to call them, whatever the historical term was at the time, your village, which were bigger villages then because it was a rural society, they made their own rules uh, and they judged their own uh, felons and miscreants and so on and so forth within the community. And that's where common law comes from, not statute law. Statute law is something that came much later. And of course, you lose the wisdom of generations of common law where you can look back over common law and you can see that nothing's new and that's uh, that's come up before and this is how it was dealt with so you have the wisdom of generations of men now with statute law which is corpus juris in the european union system they make law they make thousands of laws every year which is why you end up in this absurd situation where you can't do anything uh, in europe uh, without a little man ticking a box to make sure you've done right there are more people ticking boxes than actually creating anything. The wealth creation section now is getting so small, it can't support the weight of the public sector, uh, because the public sector is better paid with better pensions, they're unsackable. And sooner or later, the town hall and Whitehall are going to swamp it, which of course, uh, Lord Salisbury going back all that time, uh, he said another wonderful thing, he said, if, uh, the more 
<clears throat> the more people you have in government, the more they will build their empire. You know, they will build more people around them and the people around them will build more people around them. That's the virus that we have here, not coronavirus. We have a virus in the public sector and it's going exponentially all the time. We just got to stop. We can't all work for the bloody government. So somebody's <laughs> actually got to put a shelf up or make a car. You know, somebody's actually got to do something. Yeah, I so, mean, um, we're just not we're just not going that route at the moment. But it, the reason I think it is cyclical, John, is because it has to be. It has to be. If it can't go on, it won't go on. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that characterization. It's just, you know, it's too bad. I guess it's a tragedy of history. Maybe it's something inherent in our psychology that makes it forever the case that we have to wait for things to get so bad and to collapse before we're motivated to for, for action and change. And, you know, I, I totally agree with your characterization. The state is the virus. And, you know, when you have the state jobs that are not only protected, but that are, you know, the, the, the worse things get, the more people call out for state intervention. So the state necessarily has to grow until the virus kills the host. And it's a shame that, that we have to bring it to, to that end. But, you know, the other living in this paradigm, this, this world that we have right now, the thing that's so bothersome is that because of the way that the power centralizes under the current financial system uh, and system of governance, um, the fears, the morality, the values of the people that have concentrated that power at the top are imposed on everyone else that is below them. And so that's why, you know, we can have, look, I'm not an expert in the, the, the climate change thing. I'm highly skeptical of the motivations and the, the narrative that's being pushed uh, almost exclusively around the world today. Um, but whether, like, whether or not that's true, the fact is that when you have such centralized power and control, it, you know, it doesn't matter if it's true or not, it'll affect the lives of billions of people just because it's the conclusion or it's the narrative that that centralized point of power and control has conjured up, whether through good intentions or bad, everyone is subject to them. And that's, you know, that's a real travesty because it, it obviously uh, infringes on and detracts from the degree of freedom that people can feel. And look, the last year, it's, you know, it has been an interesting one, and I think will be an interesting one to study in hindsight. But some people have enjoyed the extra time at home to watch Netflix and surf on the internet and stuff and, you know, fair, fair play. But a lot of other people have been incredibly, uh, have experienced a lot of emotional turmoil by such an overt infringement and of their freedom and in containment of their, their movement and uh, you know, and the mask wearing and all this kind of stuff. And in like, as we were saying about, you know, what's going, what's it going to take for people to take action for that apathy to be, you know, for people to shake themselves out of the apathy. I suspect the, the typical legacy financial world and the government will continue doing what they've done until it reaches a point where maybe they can no longer do so. But what I have noticed, and this is a point of discussion where let, let's break into solutions to these problems we've been identifying, is that a lot of people in seeing these solutions and being unhappy about them are starting to ask the question, you know, how can I push back? How is there a life raft? Is there a parallel system? Is there a community of people or an asset that I can protect my, my wealth and that kind of stuff? 
And that's where people are, are looking at things like gold and increasingly things like Bitcoin and saying, this is the way that we take our freedom back. This is the way that we take our sovereignty back. And, it's, and most Bitcoiners understand that that could very well be a hell of a fight. You know, because the, the, you know, the quote unquote powers that be, again, whether in the conspiracy domain or just incompetence and a, and a manifestation of the existing structure of the system, whatever it may be, they will like unlikely relinquish power and control that they've generated easily. And so there's a very adversarially, adversarial uh, ethos in the Bitcoin community. And uh, I'd love to know from your perspective, what first drew you to looking at Bitcoin and taking it seriously, because to be frank, people in your demographic often will dismiss it either because it's too unknown, it's, it's, it's not in their wheelhouse, and they don't want to spend the time to learn about it, or it's dismissed by your peers, and, and that, that causes people to dismiss it. Now, I'm not suggesting you're one of those people. I know you, you, know, you seem to be a very independent thinker, so I don't think your peers would put much pressure on you in that regard, but what was it that inspired you to have a, a serious look at Bitcoin? Well, it's interesting because I've been uh, not an investor until October, but I've been looking at Bitcoin. And of course, I'm totally committed to moving whatever I can out of the state system, which, of course, I know is heading for the rocks. It's a lifeboat, isn't it? I mean, gold or Bitcoin is your lifeboat. The ship is sinking a lifeboat. And so that lifeboat over there might look a little more stable than that lifeboat over there. You, know, you, you don't really know. And that's a personal judgment that we all make. Uh, now, funnily enough, Claudio Grass. Uh, in Switzerland, who is uh, a fellow gold bug uh, and well known in Switzerland and quite a senior guy uh, who, who I've worked with before and Alistair MacLeod uh, and, and, and some very, very powerful intellects uh, on the gold bug side. Um, I was talking to him and I was saying, being a professional fund manager, I believe in diversification. Uh, you, you cannot have one asset class. It's a very dangerous game to play. And I have found a little bit, since I've got a lot of interaction with Bitcoiners, uh, it's something that they don't fully understand. Because when I look at Bitcoiners, they're nice, they're articulate, but they're not professional fund managers. They know the way things are going. They might be musicians. They might be all sorts of different surgeons. They could be different professions but they're not professionals in the investment world. So they don't fully understand the concept of diversification. Uh, and I do. And suddenly I realized that I was actually saying, you know, don't do what I do, do what I say. Uh, here I was with something like 70% of my net, net, net assets in gold, in specie, of course. I'm not stupid, <laughs> not ETFs, you know, not bank, bank chits pretending they've got the gold, which is because what ETFs are. Um, uh, the real McCoy in a safe in London. Don't come around here, anybody watching. I don't have it here. <laughs> don't rob me here. You know, it's not here. It's in London in an independent vault, family vault. Uh, so that's what it is. And uh, Claudio Grass, he said, uh, we were discussing this, and he said, yes, you're right. And he said, I would, I would suggest to you, he's a much younger man than me, I would suggest to you that you get some Bitcoin because we're coming to an era now where it's actually more risky not to have Bitcoin than to have it. And I looked at it and I thought, yeah, you're right. You're right. It is more risky not to, if you don't have Bitcoin, you're taking a big risk. Um, and if you look at gold, for example, 
which as I say, I wish I could persuade some Bitcoiners to stop this. You know, it's got to be one thing or it's got to be the other. But if you take a gold sovereign, which is, you know, and I show this if I'm lecturing at universities, I happen to have a gold sovereign with 1905. It's a 1905 sovereign, but it doesn't really matter. This sovereign, I said, with 1905 would buy you bed and breakfast in London, then a sovereign, that's what it would buy you. And it will buy you that today in London. It will buy you that today. And the interesting thing about that gold sovereign, it will buy you bed and breakfast in every capital city in the world. That gold coin in your pocket, that's what it will buy you. And any hotel manager will accept it. Uh, he might run out and change it himself, or he, he will facilitate that, let, let's put it that way. Uh, and so we know, and it's been like that for 5,000 years. And another thing that people make the mistake of gold bugs sometimes, uh, not all gold bugs, but some gold bugs, they believe that gold is an investment. Now, that's the wrong way to look at gold. People make this mistake. Gold is not an investment. Gold is a, is, is, is a wealth retainer. It means that it's time preference. It means that that gold that you have today will buy in 100 years what it bought you know, today. It'll buy that in 100 years time. It isn't an investment. It's protection of wealth. It's a protection of money. Gold is money, as JP Morgan said uh, over 100 years ago. Only gold really is money. And that's before crypto was invented or thought of or even conceived of. How could it be? Now we have a different player on the block uh, and we have crypto and Bitcoin, which can't be degraded because it's finite. Some Bitcoiners say, oh, yes, but I mean, gold is my The amount of gold which is actually mined uh, as a ratio with the population is tiny, you know, tiny. Gold mining doesn't degrade the, the value of gold. What degrades the value of gold is criminal uh, activities on Wall Street selling and buying paper, which isn't gold, manipulating the price. And that's been going on for decades with the compliance of the state and central banks. Well, they would, wouldn't they? And the SEC. You couldn't do that with any other commodity other than gold because they don't want people to buy. The true price of gold would be much nearer $4,000 an ounce if it hadn't been manipulated. We all know, of course, that that will finish. You can't cheat forever. Sooner or later, the music will stop. Now, Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin is still very small. Uh, you know, when it comes to the people hold it, the number of people hold it, the amount of holdings. But I would suggest, and you're more expert in this than me, but looking at it from a, you know, a, a research, a, a research economist perspective, I would expect uh, it to go to about five trillion in a few years time. And I wouldn't be surprised if it went to 10 trillion dollars in, 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 uh, in its turnover value. Now that presents a danger because as you rightly said earlier, the central banks and politicians and bureaucrats, they won't give up this control easily. They won't give up this control easily. Bitcoin is to be feared. And the only way uh, that can be overcome is not so much for individuals to hold it per se, although that's good. It's got to be, it's got to be big business. At the moment, we live in a cartel with politicians, banks, and big business. If big business takes on board Bitcoin, and it's just starting to look like it might, it's just beginning to start, it looks like, then you'll see the crooks, the gangsters who are big business and banks and politicians, all gangsters, they're all crooks, they're all sociopaths. Um, 
when they split down the middle, when big business says we cannot, we cannot overlook Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin is now too big. We have to be part of the Bitcoin game. And the banks and the politicians will then have to concede that. But they won't concede that lightly. That won't be easy. And there's a fight coming down. There will be a fight. The bigger and more popular Bitcoin gets, the bigger the fight will be and the more bloody. Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, a lot to uh, a lot to respond to there. I, you know, I, I agree with a lot of your characterizations. I was a gold bug myself before coming to Bitcoin. So I understand the thesis of Bitcoin. And I would push back. I think a lot of Bitcoiners do understand the benefits and the, you know, the the thinking behind diversification. Uh, I just think there's a almost a, you know, there's a there's a zealotry in, in Bitcoin, and it is a zealotry around freedom. Um, and, and Bitcoiners are, and I know you're starting to interact with them now, and, and, and that's great, but they are an incredible group of people insofar as they are basically the antithesis of the people that we were characterizing a bit earlier. They have taken it upon themselves to study extensively monetary history, world history, you know, politics, and, you know, they they don't want to delude themselves about what this thing is. And I think the more you go down the proverbial Bitcoin rabbit hole, you learn more about, more about and also the money rabbit hole. That is, that is one of the fundamental things to understand here. What is money? What kind, you know, what is the influence of the money in use in a given society on human flourishing, human freedom, prosperity? There's a lot of direct implications there that are necessary to understand if you're going to appreciate what the different forms of money that have emerged throughout history foster in terms of uh, a market and a society and et cetera. Um, so I think it's more that one, they're all in on this revolution. They understand the stakes involved. They understand what they're up against and they are putting all their eggs in one basket because they think that's, basically the only basket where their wealth will be secure. Now, everyone has to come to a, you know, that decision on their own. Different demographics, different ages, different living in different places in the world will mean that you manage your assets and your portfolio differently, of course. But you know, I think they understand diversification. It's just that they're so ideologically, philosophically all in on this, what I think is a genuine revolution, that that's why they're taking that approach. In terms of you know comparison between the two, look, I think we we judge monies on their monetary attributes, and I, I in particular look at <clears throat> money in a sense. I mean, I guess I look at it in many ways. But what is the nature of the strength and and the versatility of your claim on your money? And then beyond that, what is the optionality that that money provides? i.e. where can you use it? How can you transport it? How can you maintain your ownership of it? How can you secure it, et cetera? And you know, I, I think, again, I, being that I was a gold bug earlier in my life, I realized that gold was a market-derived money. You needed to actually work uh, to produce it. And the, you know, the, the, um, uh, the difference between its production price and its market price was such that it was a fairly good money. There wasn't much seniorage in, in gold and you know, it was a good way to preserve your capital. Now, I think Bitcoin's monetary attributes exceed golds on nearly every metric. I, I think of gold and don't, you know, uh, I know you'll probably wanna push back on this. So give me, give me a chance here, but I think gold is more an insurance policy against Bitcoin 
uh, failing. You know, Bitcoin is 12 years old. It's a digital monetary network. Uh, it could fail. I think with each passing day, that becomes less and less likely. But of course, it's possible. And the next soundest money, the next best money after Bitcoin, I would say, is gold. But of course, gold has that problem, being that it's physical, of, of centralization. And even though gold has retained its value throughout several thousand years, I'm sure it, you know, it's not lost on Bitcoiners especially that gold, because it's centralized, it's been more prone to confiscation. It's more, been more, more prone to state co-option. <clears throat> um, and it's, it's in terms of what I was saying about the versatility and the strength and the optionality of the claim on that asset, it, it, it's more restrictive. For example, you know, you said you, you, your gold could be spent in any major city across the world. Well, yeah, but what if you can't get on a plane with your gold? Well, then that, that, that strategy goes out the window. So being that Bitcoin is just purely information ultimately, and that it can be stored in your head if need be, uh, this gives it a high degree of portability and optionality in addition to its other monetary attributes of you know, uh, absolute scarcity and soundness, et cetera. So I think Bitcoiners are, are very well aware of why gold is valuable. And the, the, the funny thing with a lot of gold bugs, especially the ones that you said, you know, kind of push back on Bitcoin, is it almost seems that they don't understand why gold became money in the first place. And I think a lot of Bitcoiners do, and they're looking at it on uh, look, looking at each on each of their merits, and they're just deciding that one <clears throat> gold offers more option or sorry Bitcoin offers more optionality. And as you say, they have been engaging from with Bitcoin almost from day one under the premise that this is this is an incredibly disruptive technology to the existing power structure, and they're it's likely or you know it's possible pro even probable that there will be a big fight for this territory right that, that there will be a lot of pushback against bitcoiners which is why solutions are being developed the technology is constantly evolving to resist the different attack vectors that may come from the state that may come from other market participants that may come from one's own stupidity about engaging in this thing all of this can be because it's a technology, it can be con constantly updated and improved dependent upon the, the vulnerabilities that emerge, you know, that, that, that the, the market becomes aware of. And so for those reasons, I think Bitcoiners just say, this is, you know, this is the battle line. This is the, this is the weapon of choice for the battle that we're moving into. Um, and that's why I think they go so all in. And that's why, you know, I don't think many Bitcoiners really care whether you invest in gold or Tesla or Bitcoin or whatever. I think they just say that if you if you recognize the the battle that lies ahead, and the different attack vectors that that battle may uh, that it may emerge in that battle, then Bitcoin is the is by far the best weapon to fight that battle. I don't disagree with any of that at all. Um, with one of the problems uh, with gold, as you rightly say, is it is relatively easily confiscated by the state and we've seen that and of course in 1720 we saw the french uh, uh government confiscate gold in the time of the crisis uh, john law's crisis the mississippi bubble we saw them do that we saw president roosevelt steal the american public's gold uh, by making it illegal to hold it confiscating it and then recalibrating it price-wise in the dollar uh, just uh, just a year or so later the biggest heist in history but of course, the funny thing is with American presidents, how they're eulogized by people 
Uh, I mean, he was just a robber, <laughs> but he's still on a, on, on, on a platform as being one of the great American presidents. He was actually a thief, uh, but that's, that's neither here nor there. Um, so yes, and of course we saw in Nazi Germany, gold was confiscated uh, because it's a physical asset, all of which I understand. And I'm very aware of that. And it's interesting that my gold, although it's in a private vault in London, uh, and it's one of the most advanced electronic vaults, it's got keys, it's got thumbprints, it's got all the stuff that you would expect. And you would think it couldn't be stolen. Well, it can't be stolen, or it's very difficult to steal that if you're, if you're a, a, a robber. It's very easy for the state to do that. They don't need the key because they've got me and they've got a politicized police force and they can hold me in solitary confinement until I give them the key because they know I've bought gold because they can tra If you buy over 10,000 pounds in the UK, it's registered by the financial service. This is to stop drug money, you see. It's not a still honest citizen's money, it's to stop drug running. Right. Bullshit, you know. That's so they know where it is when they come for it and they want to steal it, and one day they will. And I understand that is a problem. That is a problem with gold. Now, I know that there's very sophisticated Bitcoin, it's getting more sophisticated all the time. You hold it in your wallet, it's terribly complex. I mean, I've got a young colleague in my office here who does most of it for me because I've got over my head. He types it all <laughs> in. It's my wallet, but he does all the clever stuff. Um, and so that that's absolutely fine. Uh, and he brought me, he's a Bitcoiner himself, great guy. And uh, he looks after me in these matters. But I think when you're talking to me here under house arrest by the state who have suspended habeas corpus for certain political uh, enemies, Julius Assange being, you know, the main one. It doesn't matter how sophisticated my wallet is and my passwords and all the rest of it. If they can take me or my family away and lock us up until I hand over my Bitcoin. And there's no uh, another thing that's gone by the board with both the IRS and HMRC here. And that is the presumption of innocence, which is a fundamental principle of English law has gone. So we've lost presumption of innocence and habeas corpus if it suits the government, right? So you can have the most sophisticated Bitcoin wallet you like, but if they kick down the door, shoot the dog, take you away and lock you up until you hand it over, it's just as stealable. There is nothing in the world that has been invented that the government can't steal. Doesn't matter what it is. They can steal it if they've a mind to. So I think that is no danger at the moment. And I think in this country, I don't think there's any danger of confiscation of gold at this stage. It may not come in my lifetime. And again, it brings us on to time horizon. My wife is much younger, so I have to make allowance for our savings and our portfolios to look after her and her appallingly extravagant habits with horses and horse boxes <laughs> and stable yards and all the rest of it. I have to make sure that that can continue when I've fallen off my perch. So consequently, but for me, that's gold suits her because she would never be wanting to cash it all in. She would just take it to any town, uh, a gold sovereign or a gold Britannia, hand it over to any little dealer, gold dealer, who will buy it at, at spot minus 2%. So she can do that once a month, and that's her income for the rest of her need. So it's very much what we need for her. 
Now, if my time horizon was longer, let's say that I was your age, for example, my it would not be 70% gold and a very small and silver and a small amount of Bitcoin. It would be very much nearer 60-40. I would have a much bigger Bitcoin holding uh, because my time expectancy would be much longer. Uh, and so uh, and so that, that, that would suit me fine. But of course, at the moment, that's peeping into chapter two of this whole thing. And so consequently, most Bitcoiners are younger and therefore, like equities, no different from equities. If you want equities to work, uh, when I was fund managing, I was fixed interest. Don't ever expect an equity portfolio to start working under seven years. You're fooling yourself. It has to be seven years. Uh, you know, it, 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 uh, otherwise it's a madness game. You've got to roll away those spikes and dips. Uh, you've got to roll all that away. So yes, I'm, I, I believe in Bitcoin, I think. But when it comes to um, what I would like to see and what would give me renewed or increased confidence, as it were, and I'm already buying, I'm already adding to Bitcoin. So I've got enough co confidence to be buying. Mm -hmm. I would love to see Mercedes, for example, for want of a, you know, a big international automobile manufacturer say, we will now accept Bitcoin for us for our cars because the problem that we have at the moment and this is true of gold as well of course if you want to buy anything you then have to turn it back into fiat currency to buy that commodity or that service and that's a fundamental weakness and until that's gone we need to acknowledge that that's a problem we need to acknowledge that mm -hmm. and i think we're maybe getting closer to that john we might be getting closer to that uh, and i think perhaps the first see when uh, I looked at an interview with um, uh, the, the Kaiser, Max Kaiser, he was being interviewed a couple of weeks ago. You probably saw it. And he was being interviewed about Bitcoin. Uh, and uh, I think Alex McLeod was on there. He was a gold bug. Anyway, it wasn't a gold versus Bitcoin argument. Um, no, it wasn't. Uh, anyway, somebody asked Max Kaiser, who's been a, a, a Bitcoin bug for, for many years, uh, that you must have squillions of it, Max. You must have loads and loads and loads of it. And he gave a rather wry smile, uh, which meant, yes, I do have squillions of it. Thank you very much. Yes, loads and loads. Aren't I clever? <laughs> but then she asked a bit of a killer question. What are you going to do with it? He didn't really know what he was going to do with it, but he had lots and lots and lots of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so he obviously got it up his screen every now and again and saw that he had squillions and squillions. Um, but of course, if he wants to buy anything, if he wants to buy a huge ranch in Texas, he has to change it back into dollars. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a, there's a couple of things I'd like to address there. But first on the Max Kaiser example, you know, I think what we're seeing, and it, this, this relates to gold and Bitcoin, is we're seeing a kind of Gresham's law in action, right? People are spending the, the fiat that's de depreciating at an ever-increasing rate and hoarding the good money. And that's a rational thing to do. So that's part of the reason. Another part of the reason is that what I think most Bitcoiners would agree with me here is that we're seeing the monetization, the global monetization of a new form of money. And, you know, I, I, I often cast my mind's eye back to what it, the world must have looked like when gold was first monetized. But of course, it was monetized in different eras and periods in different places, you know, in the Middle East, Fertile Crescent versus, you know, South America versus wherever. Um, right now, we have a globally connected world. Um, and we're seeing the simultaneous monetization throughout the world of a new form of money. And because of that, 
And as you said, I agree with you that money is not supposed to be an investment. Money is supposed to preserve the value of work done and be the instrument of expressing your will in the world. However, in the period, if you find yourself in an era where a new form of money is monetizing, which is an exceedingly rare period of, of, of history to exist in, um, then the smart thing to do is to accumulate as much of it as possible as it monetizes and not spend it until it's done that process. Because if you do, the opportunity cost of doing so will be leaving a lot on the table because you'll be spending it before it's properly monetized. And at, for it to monetize, especially if it's an absolutely scarce money, the, the, the supply can't adjust, so the price has to adjust upward. And I think that's a lot of the reason why Bitcoiners are holding on very tight to their Bitcoin is because you know they realize the process that's at play here and they don't wanna spend it into the market too soon. They'll spend the dirty fiat first and, and hoard the Bitcoin. However, that being said, um, most people, well, two things. One, actually right now, today, yesterday and today, um, MicroStrategy, I'm not sure if you heard of them, in the fall, um, their CEO came out. It's a publicly listed company on the NASDAQ. And Bitcoiners had always assumed that companies would start dipping their toes in the water and maybe putting some on their balance sheet. Uh, this guy, tech company, fell down the rabbit hole during the lockdowns in March <clears throat> and ended up putting all of their corporate treasury to the tune of $500 million into Bitcoin and then raised another $650 million around Christmas time um, in convertible debt to put into Bitcoin as well. And it's an ongoing strategy. So they put another 10 million last week. And anyways, they're hosting a conference this week that is purely designed to, and it's a free conference where they open their playbook to other corporate institutions around the world uh, to say, this is how we, this is why we adopted a Bitcoin standard um, as a company for our corporate treasury. This is how you can do it from legal accounting treatment, et cetera, et cetera, uh, should you want to do that. So to your point, and this is also part of resisting the state attack vector is the more distributed this thing is, the more companies, the more politicians, the more high net worth individuals, the more people all over the world that adopt this thing, of course, the harder it is to criminalize it and to, you know, call it purely the domain of drug dealers and pornographers and that kind of stuff. So that's happening right now. Um, and the, the third thing about the spending is that um, even though there's not very much desire for Bitcoiners, regardless of how much wealth they've accumulated in Bitcoin to spend it, one, of course, you could, you know, you could convert it back into fiat, as you said, and spend it. But more importantly, we're entering an era where because of the development of the technology, and I won't go in too much into the weeds on this um, here, but using something called the Lightning Network, which is basically just a layer on top of the Bitcoin network connected to it, um, spending has become you know, a, a lot easier and a lot cheaper and interoperability with the existing legacy banking system is being established now as well. Um, and I got to do a shout out to uh, my boy, Jack Mahlers at uh, LN Strike, the a company that's uh, doing a lot of great work in this area. So I think the spending is there now if wanted, there's just not much will to do it. And that's why we're seeing more hoarding than spending. And I think a lot of bigger players are coming onto this. Um, the, you know, another thing I wanted to mention is what's interesting about Bitcoin. And when we talk about this adversarial nature of, you know, people that are adopting this vis-a-vis -a, -vis a state that might seek to control it or push back in the future. Um, I agree that, you know, the state could knock on your door, put a gun in your face and say, we're going to hold you in a jail cell until you give up the keys to your Bitcoin or, you know, uh, the, the, tell us where your gold is, right? That's, 
that's power. And that's always been the case. The interesting distinction here from how it's always been the case is that um, it, almost all throughout history, if people didn't give up their wealth, you know, their home, their gold, their assets, whatever, you could kill them and take it. And that's, you know, that is largely the story of history, whether it's country versus country or state versus individual, et cetera. With Bitcoin, because it's information, you could co try to coerce somebody to give up their keys. But if they decide not to do that, if they just, you know, for whatever reason, there's not an avenue, if it's, if it's treated properly, there's different ways to custody your Bitcoin and treat it. So I want to be clear here. If you use it to its maximal um, abilities, let's say what it allows for, then someone could try to coerce you and they could even take your life if you're willing to sacrifice it. But that doesn't necessarily mean they could get the, the asset. And you know, there's a book behind me, The Sovereign Individual, um, and it talks about in that book, the logic of violence and how that's a, a big driver of how the structure of society changes throughout the course of history and how technology influences the imbalance of power between state and individual or individual versus individual or state versus state, etc. And I think that's an important distinction is that, you know, the state can coerce anybody, but it doesn't with Bitcoin being information, it doesn't necessarily mean that should they go all the way and take your life, that they can get your Bitcoin. And I think that changes the incentives for using force to try to access Bitcoin. And finally, on that point, um, Bitcoiners, uh, like I said before, they're kind of ride or die about this thing. And I think many Bitcoiners think in terms of in this interim transitionary period, um, I'm probably, I may have to be extremely mobile, you know, and, and lockdowns influence that, but certainly the nature of your capital and your savings influence that. And I think, you know, they're willing to move to foreign countries they're willing to uproot their families and this kind of stuff in order to, uh, preserve their freedom and preserve the value of, of their capital. And I think that's what we'll increasingly see a migration towards areas that are promoting more promoting of freedom. Uh, versus, you know, areas, you know, let's say California or, or other countries that are more imposing greater and greater, um, the state is a greater and greater imposition on them. Um, and the, the last one, which may trigger you a little bit, but I, I think this, this is, this is how, what I think is going to play out. Gold's had a, a glorious run for the last 5,000 years. Um, you know, a big fan of the role it's played. And, and interestingly, and I think this is a part of history that a lot of people would do well to study is what kind of societies emerge from, you know, markets using gold as money versus seashells as money versus fiat currency as money. And I think it's a pretty easy argument to make that you go through history and you look at the societies that have used gold as money and they flourished relative to the other, um, other forms of money that, that have been used elsewhere. But I liken it to horses and the motor vehicle. Horses were the mode of transportation for 10,000 plus years um, of human history. They were fundamental to transportation and, and sovereignty and the ability to move yourself through space for human beings for a large part of history. Um, and then the motor, motor vehicle came around and it did that better. Um, and, you know, it, I think it would have been impossible at that time to think, well, horses aren't going away, surely. They've been with us for so long. But technology is such that it obsoletes lesser technologies. And like I said, you know, I think 
that may be the case with gold. And so as long as it's been around and, you know, in the macro environment we're in right now, you know, it's, it's almost inconceivable to think that gold won't appreciate against the, the backdrop of all this money printing, et cetera. But if I were a gold investor, which I'm not, uh, I would be wary of this technological shift that may obsolete the much of the monetary uh, investment case or the monetary use case for gold. Um, and I think what we may see after, you know, in, in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years is gold being reduced down to a more industrial metal um, because of course it has many uses there and maybe, and, and jewelry, et cetera, um, but losing in a more digital era um, in a, in a vastly different environment that we're moving into lose its monetary uh, value uh, kind of in the way that horses and motor vehicles, the dynamic that played out there. So that's what I would uh, think is food for thought for people that are, are looking at gold and Bitcoin and other ways to store uh, the value they've accumulated. Yes, I don't dispute any of that. It's perfectly fair assessment of probably what I think will happen in the longer term. Um, obviously, as you could probably see from my wrinkles, the longer term is <laughs> my game, <laughs> notwithstanding the young wife. Um, yeah, all of that's fair. All, all that's very fair. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, which, please. Uh, now, we have a situation with gold where the price of my gold in my vault is not controlled by people buying and selling gold. It's controlled by the fake paper market and 800, I think. In my book, I, I think it was 600. I did some research on this in my book. It was 600 pieces of paper to one piece of gold. And of course, that's where we're seeing it trade backwards and forwards quite fraudulently at the moment. And uh, funnily enough, only today, I think it was Egan, uh, Egan what's his name? Uh, uh, on with Max Kaiser talking about the manipulation of the price of gold and how sooner or later people will want good delivery. Sooner or later, this will crash. It could not be this year, next year, but sooner or later, gold will find its real value, its real monetary value. It has to. Um, it seems to me, let me just put this to you. Let's say the Black Rock decide to run a crypto fund. We've got a crypto fund. Uh, you go into an advisor of BlackRock or one of BlackRock's cronies or, or part of the, the overall syndicate. And the punter goes in and says, I'd like to buy, I, I need to get into Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the way forward. I've heard about it at the pub and so on. But even that fat idiot Bloom has bought some Bitcoin. <laughs> so there must be something going on here. I want a piece of that. So he goes in and the guy says to him, and I can see this in my mind's eye very clearly. Yes, indeed. Uh, Bitcoin's, you know, the main leader, but there are other cryptocurrencies. Would you like to buy into our professionally managed expert fund of, 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 of cryptocurrencies? And he said, well, that sounds, that sounds good. He said, how much do you like to start with? Uh, well, uh, let's say 10,000 pounds worth just to start with. Uh, okay, he said, yes, I can transfer that into your account. That's no problem at all. That's done. Uh, and we'll buy those units today. Now, no Bitcoin has been bought any more than if you went in and asked the guy for gold, would he have bought you gold? He would have sold you an ETF. It is possible, and don't, I never confuse impossible with improbable. It's a dangerous mistake to make in the investment world. You could find that the world and his wife, small saver, 
and we've just seen some interesting stuff in the silver market, the world and his wife might rely on his financial advisor to go into the crypto fund, which is professionally managed. He doesn't fully understand it. It's very easy. You know, he doesn't have to involve himself in anything really at all. And so you find that it could get to the stage where a market is being made, book is being made on cryptocurrencies, which is actually governing the price, not the trade of the price. How, how would you suggest to me that that can't happen? Yeah, so, you know, I, I take your point about the gold market and what most people, you know, as you said earlier, you know, you own gold in specie and that was always how I did it as well because otherwise you have a claim on price exposure. And the, the, the risk there is the counterparty risk of the bank. You know, if they become insolvent, then they can't fulfill that claim. And you never had gold in the first place. And now you don't even have a means of, of you know, whatever difference in the price there was since you purchased it. So um, I agree that those shenanigans can happen. They probably are happening to some degree right now. But the important distinction here, and this is why the, <clears throat> excuse me, the Bitcoin community can be so abrasive to people that are coming in and can be so uh, absolute to people coming in. And that's some people have an aversion to that. I think it's a feature, not a bug um, in articulating best practices to people that come into the space so that one, as an individual, you're not subject to the shenanigans that may go on in the, in the space. But two, we build this network of both technology and people in a manner that it's less susceptible to the types of shenanigans you just articulated. One of the ways of doing that, and one of the things that, that's um, suggested to people is that unlike gold, you know, assaying gold, let's say, you know, verify, you know, possessing it yourself and verifying that it's not tungsten with some, you know, paint on it, but it's actually gold is very expensive. And this is part of the reason why it's centralized over, over time. Um, with Bitcoin, if you run your own node, you can verify that what you're interacting with is Bitcoin, right? And it's not a paper claim and it's not anything like that. So you're right in that a lot of, um, let's say traditional investors or people in a certain demographic all over the world right now, they're looking for Bitcoin price exposure. And you know, there's products on the different exchanges here in Canada, we have them in the US, et cetera. ETFs seem to be coming down the pike that are going to be open up a paper market for, for Bitcoin. Now, these, the, a lot of these institutions claim that they're buying Bitcoin for every dollar that comes into the fund and there's a one-to-one -one backing and that kind of stuff, but you don't know. You know th there's a huge element of, of trust there and that's the problem. And so that's why Bitcoiners advocate for buying only the real thing, not paper exposure, not intermediated through a company that lists something on the stock market or whatever and verif verifying for yourself that it is indeed Bitcoin. And if you do that, then you can be sure that one, there's no intermediary between you and your asset. Nobody can cut off your access. Nobody can take it from you, nothing. It, it is yours. And that it is what you think it is and what the market says it is. And so I think as an individual, you insulate yourself from shenanigans to some degree that way. But as a broader ethos of, of this community, if we can get more and more people to look at this thing as a, as a tool of sovereignty, rather than just another means of either preserving or growing capital, then that will foster a healthier ecosystem around this thing. It doesn't negate the fact that there will probably still be, still be the ability for some form of manipulation in paper markets, and some people may fall prey to that. 
But I think because of the fact that this is a verifiable bearer asset without the need for an intermediary, it largely uh, resists those types of shenanigans that have existed in the gold and other markets throughout history. Um, I know, obviously, everybody watching your show knows that because they're Bitcoiners and they already know that. Um, <laughs> But I would suggest to you that very, very few people who think they hold gold, most people who hold gold, and this are a bug like me, uh, they probably think that there is gold at the bank. That, that, the, that, 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 you know, Bank of Australia, well, they'll have the gold, won't they? No, they don't have the gold. Bank of America, no, they don't have the gold. They've given you a promissory note. Right. I shouldn't think more than one person in 100 who has that exposure knows that. And if we get the mass market in Bitcoin, which we both think is a good thing, both want to happen, um, with millions of people coming into it, I think BlackRock will intercept them. That, you know, that, 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 and, and, and that, the, the danger of that is slightly, well, it's significantly higher than we might imagine just at the moment, which is why I would like to see I would like to see some very senior respected people, which is difficult in the modern world we live in. If you're a multi-billionaire, you didn't get there because you're a saint. You've probably got there because you're a teeny bit crooked. If you got to the top of the greasy pole in pro politics, you were pro probably almost certainly crooked. Um, I would like to see somebody come in, uh, you know, a, a major profile or uh, in each country, because everyone's got a different profile, haven't they? We've got Tim Martin of Weatherspoons here, who's got a big pub chain, for example, uh, who's quite a free thinking guy. Uh, and he comes in and say, for example, and this is not a flight of fancy, he say, I will take Bitcoin in my pub, in my pubs, my whole chain, you could, you could pay with Bitcoin, set up an account or something like that. And that would get a whole mass market thinking this is good. And he would then say, because he's that kind of guy, he could say, just a minute, just make sure one thing, folks, you've got your own, your own wallet, you've got your own system. And then people say, oh, I'll make sure that that's okay. And I think if we had somebody in every major country uh, who is of that social standing or, or intellectual standing or business standing, which actually automatically rules out politicians, um, <laughs> certainly, and bankers, uh, but I think that would move it f f further. I'm extremely keen. I like to play a bit of dabble's advocate, like, as indeed you do yourself, otherwise the show would be too boring. Um, but what, But I'm a big believer in it. I'm buying it. I'm going to buy more of it. I continue to buy more of it um, to, 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 to restore my position to, to, to get you know, out of this overweight gold position. So the more new money I get, uh, I should be uh, a bit kind of, and nothing I want to see succeed more because it's on, a, it's on a political and moral level that I want to see Bitcoin. So I'm very much in the same moral dynamic as the average Bitcoiner. Uh, I'm just old and slightly perhaps a little bit more cynical. <laughs> well, fair enough. You know, with, with age comes wisdom. And many of us haven't seen, uh, you know, the types of events or been so intimately, uh, you know, involved in them as you have. So fair enough. Uh, the, the last point I'll say on that, that topic, and then I'll let you go, is, um, you know, it, it's, I think more and more big names, quote unquote, will are coming in now and they're, they're advocating for Bitcoin and why it's important and what its uses are. And I, I agree, like, you know, it, it's often said in the space, you come for the gains, you stay for the freedom, 
You know, you, you come because, wow, this thing is going up in price. I could become rich. And then you start to understand the philosophy and the ethos behind it. And you say, oh, this is about way more than getting rich. This is about getting free. This is about sovereignty. This is about morality. This is about all these things that we've been talking about. And so I think people will come for that. Um, you know, it, like let's, I think people all over the world will wake up to the economic necessity of having a life raft. And I think Bitcoin will be available to them. For example, if you're, you know, a poor farmer in the Philippines and your government is, you know, printing your currency like crazy, you know, what's the easiest thing to do? It's probably to get on your smartphone and get some Bitcoin. Uh, and that's probably the, the easiest way to protect your wealth. And I think more that'll happen more and more as the macro backdrop unravels. And I think that one of the critical uh, catchphrases in this space, um, and which which would serve to inhibit the the potential issue that you've just been articulating, is something called we say not your keys, not your coins. And basically, that just means if anybody is intermediating your relationship with the private keys to your Bitcoin, then they're te then they're not your Bitcoin. And so, but if you are the only intermediary there, if it's a if it's a solely a bare asset under your control then a lot of the shenanigans that, that we've seen emerge in other markets would at least be resisted more than they have been in those markets. Not saying it's not possible for them to have an influence, but I think less of an influence. Um, but as you said, you know, people in your demographic, I mean, you may need someone to help you with this stuff and, or you may need someone to help facilitate that. And that is a drawback that does uh, inhibit, you know, your degree of control or security over this asset but maybe it's necessary in order for you to establish any exposure to it at all. So this is everyone's in different circumstances and, and everyone has to. So, so I usually just recommend never stop learning about this because the rabbit hole is extremely deep and it, it's in the philosophical, the economic, the technological, the spiritual domain even. I mean, it's really, really deep. And I, I suggest that the best thing to do uh, when the interest is peaked is just to keep learning. And there are so many great writers and speakers and all that kind of stuff in this space that produce so much great content for free that really, you know, you're spoiled for choice if, if learning is, is what you want to do. Um, Gavri, you've been uh, really, really gracious with your time, and I, I really do appreciate that. The last thing I wanted to ask you is just, you know, here we are, right? We're, we're in this crazy, you know, dumpster fire of a world right now. Um, how do you, like, what is your way, other than what we've been discussing, managing your personal finances, Bitcoin, gold, whatever, um, how are you integrating this in terms of like, what is your way of moving forward in the world as a result of finding yourself in such a, a crazy place? Because I think a lot of people in the world right now, and this is partially the reason why so many people are so passionately going into Bitcoin, because it's kind of like the only accessible bastion of freedom and hope. And that's why it's drawing in so many people. But in day-to-day -day life, et cetera, like what are your ambitions for trying to, and, and, and how do you integrate what's going on to move forward positively in, in the world and you know not be driven mad by all of this craziness? Uh, well, that's a good question. Funnily enough, we've been in this situation since March, of course. Uh, it's also my hypothesis that this will never end. Uh, I don't think we're going to come out of some form of lockdown. I think this is permanent uh, or semi-permanent, uh, because if they're talking about further lockdown because the virus has mutated, the supposed virus has supposedly mutated, and they're pretending they're surprised the virus has mutated. 
<laughs> come on, come on. Every schoolboy who's doing science knows that viruses mutate. So that's more bullshit. So we're going to be in the lockdown situation in some form, uh, certainly probably in some form for the rest of my life. But what is actually what we're doing? How am I handling it? I live in a small village uh, in East Yorkshire. We have a small holding, a few chickens, a few horses, uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, we have, uh, my wife is still working, I'm still working, um, and there's youngsters in the village who are still working. Uh, and we've really formed a little, oh, going back to the Anglo-Saxon times, we've gone back to the Anglo-Saxon village in many ways. Uh, we've got potential snitches in the village, of course, who can't wait to phone <laughs> the authorities to tell us that we're having a drink somewhere or we're walking the dog together or something like that, which is a very sad thing. But we found out in the village who, who are believers in freedom, personal freedom, physical freedom. Uh, that's brought us together. And it's a very eclectic mix, I can tell you, a very eclectic mix indeed. It's been, that aspect has been rather fun because they've taken away our pubs. Uh, and of course, you'll know that the British pub is the, at the heart of the nation and has been since the days of Dr. Johnson, who preferred the tavern to the coffee house. That's where we meet and get together and exchange ideas. And you leave your rank in the car park. You leave your rank in the car park of a British pub. They've been trying to close pubs for decades. No, it's not just this. Politicians and government hate ordinary people getting together and exchanging ideas. They hate that. They can't deal with that. Freedom of association is something that all governments positively hate. Um, and so consequently, we're getting, we're getting around that. We're getting around that uh, by doing our own thing, as it were. Uh, so, uh, and I'm not the only one. It's happening all over the country. People are running their little villages and their little lives in a slightly different way. They would have met at the pub. I don't, speakeasy comes to mind. You know, speakeasy comes to mind, to be honest. <laughs> I hope nobody's watching this in England. Um, but uh, yeah, so we're being very positive and we, my wife and I, you know, we, 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 we keep each other revved up so we don't do negative thinking. And every time we, 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 we think a bit negatively, which was last night, a bit negative, we got absolutely drunk as lords last night. I'm talking to you with a monster hangover here. Today. <laughs> so the quickest way out of this is a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> well said. Well said. Uh, do you, do you, is is leaving the UK even an option at this stage in your in your lives, or are you? I don't, wouldn't know where to go. Right. I wouldn't know where to go. I mean, I'm a, the reason I'm in this country is because I like pubs, I like roast beef, and I like Yorkshire pudding. A miserable bastard though they are in Yorkshire, I like Yorkshiremen. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so no no not at my time of life but where would i go australia melbourne well that's get the, beaten up by the bloody australian police that's the question you know that's the big that's the 64 million dollar question is and where Canada, where the hell is there freedom in the world right now you know I where mean, would we, you go we, we look to the old dominions as being you know the land of the free lumberjacks with check shirts in your part of the world and guys <laughs> with corks on the hats down in australia that's what that's our perception here. Mm. And we can't believe when we see when we see the Melbourne police in Australia arresting a girl for sunbathing. Unless it was just a way of getting a telephone number, maybe let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, but it's horrific and it's horrible and it's frightening. And that's what depresses us. Not our personal freedom, because we can live with that kind of problem. But mm. when we look at the world, the way it's going today, 
if that doesn't depress you and frighten you, there's something wrong with you. I, I couldn't agree with that more. And, uh, you know, here's hoping that uh, conversations like this, the work that you've been doing in writing and speech and videos and all the other people who value freedom and who promote tools that help you establish more of it in your life, uh, reach more and more ears. Maybe people have more time to consume this sort of stuff when they're locked down. And that's a silver lining in all this. So, uh, yeah, Godfrey, this has uh, been a great discussion. It's been great to connect with you. I appreciate the time. Uh, any last words before we we sign off here? No, just thank you for inviting me. And thanks to all those Bitcoiners who have given me input in the last, you know, via Twitter and stuff. It's been, I, I do assess it uh, and it's been most useful. And the learning curve has been steep. Uh, and uh, I'm still learning, but then I think we're all still learning, really, aren't we, every day? Absolutely. And uh, as you know, uh, for people that are honest and forthright and interested, they're a, a very helpful bunch. So I'm sure, you know, if you ever have any further questions, they'd be they and I would be happy to help you out in any way. Super duper. All right, mate. Take care. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Bye. Oh.